You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to William Landay. William is the author of Defending Jacob, which won the Strand Critics Award for Best Novel, The Strangler, listed as a Best Crime Novel of the Year by the LA Times, The Daily Telegraph, and others, and Mission Flats, winner of the Dagger Award for Best First Crime Novel. A former assistant district attorney, he lives in Boston and joins me today to talk about his latest novel, All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, William. Thank you. It's great to be here. Nice to have you. And William, I have to ask you the question I ask all my authors as we begin this conversation, which is, where does your story as an author begin? <laughs> it, uh, I was an assistant DA outside Boston uh, in the early 90s, and I had always been kind of writing on the side as a hobby. And I was approaching my 30th birthday, which seemed very, very old to me at the time. And I thought, if I'm ever going to try this, I should make a serious stab at it. Uh, but it wasn't, I wasn't deciding to be a novelist. That didn't strike me as a realistic career choice. Um, growing up, I never knew, there were no writers in my universe and no artists really of any kind that I can think of. Um, so my goal was just to, you know, see if I could finish, first it was a story and then finish a novel. And then it was uh, actually publish a novel. And as you go along, the goalposts keep moving back and back. So I was writing nights and weekends. And then as I got more serious about it, and as I, as you move up in the DA's office, the cases get a little more serious. And when you're on trial, um, it's just consuming. And the idea that you're going to write a novel in, in your free moments is not really uh, realistic. So what I would do for a few years is I would leave when you work for the state. One of the few good things about working for the state is they uh, confiscate <laughs> some of your earnings and put them in a retirement fund. And when you leave, you're allowed to uh, loot that retirement fund and pull your money out. So I would pull it out and I would live for a year off of that and, and write. And when I ran out of money or ran out of words, I would go back to the DA's office. And so that was how I went for a few years, and then I kind of went all in and decided I'd just try it full time. And in the, so this went on for years. And in the interim, I got married, and uh, that wasn't 
the the deal breaker so much, but we, we were getting ready to have our first kid and suddenly uh, unemployed writer didn't seem like a terrific way to go through life anymore. Um, so actually we were at the uh, OB's office uh, for a, a, to hear the baby's heartbeat. Uh, and we were in the waiting room when the call came through that I had gotten my first uh, book deal. And so that's when we decided, thankfully it was a, a two book deal, uh, which meant that I had the opportunity to keep going. And so that's how it started. But it still feels very contingent and uncertain to me. And I'm kind of waiting for it all to end even now. Um, you just It's just a precarious way to make a living. So um, so yeah, still just kind of stumbling along and waiting, waiting for the uh, for the grown-up in the room to come and tell me that it's time to get a real job. <laughs> well, you know, how long had it been since you started writing? You know, kind of nights, weekends, while working the DA's office um, to to getting a book deal, like a formal book. Ten deal. years, ten years. I, I got out of law school in 1990, and that was when I started. Um, in fact, I spent a year clerking for a judge. And I used to stay in the office at the courthouse after work, and and I would write a little bit then, and because uh, it was quiet, and um, so that's really when I would start the clock. It wasn't consistent though, because again, you're looking to snatch time from from different things. So it's a nights and weekends thing for a long time, and, and again, it takes a long time. In addition to learning. Uh, learning the technique and just getting your reps in and, and trying to get better. It also just took me a long time to uh, get it in my head that I could actually do this. It just seemed loony. It would, it's like deciding you're going to play in the NBA or something. It just isn't a realistic <laughs> choice <laughs> for a long time. So, right. so I kind of, it took, it took me a long time to get there. So you had to you had to overcome a little bit of imposter syndrome. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I have to overcome that every morning, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> most, I think most authors do. For you know, I've talked to people who've sold you know forty million books, um, and they still deal with it. So it is it's certainly not uncommon. I think that's right. I think How it's many... also I don't I think it's one of these professions that as you go, I don't one book doesn't make you more confident about the next. Every time you start a book or every time you look at that blank page you blanch a little bit. It's, it's, uh, I don't feel like you've ever got it licked. I don't ever walk around thinking, okay, now I'm a writer. I've got this thing mastered. I can, I can just take off the brakes and go. How many full length manuscripts, um, did you have finished before you got your book deal? Mm, full length, only one. I would say there were two that were very close and could have easily been completed, but I knew they just weren't good enough. Um, and it was taking me a while too to figure out what kind of books I was interested in writing. Was I did I want to write thrillers? Did I want to write, uh, you know, introspective, uh, uh, lightly disguised autobiography? What what kind of writer? was I? So it takes a while to find your subject. And it took a while for me to admit that I was an assistant DA and therefore I was looking at great material right on my desk every day. Um, so I, for some reason, didn't and wasn't intuitively drawn to that right away. And even now, 
I don't consider myself a crime writer uh, because it's just it wasn't where my interest lay uh, at the beginning. And so um, I do find it interesting, uh, but I I think of crime mostly as a, a prism to to consider other things. I don't know that uh, crime itself or criminals are especially interesting inherently. Um, they're, these stories are only interesting to the extent they say something broader about ourselves uh, when they speak to us about family or relationships or about what we non-criminals are capable of. Uh, they don't they don't especially uh, uh, hold my interest. Well, speak for yourself <laughs> about being a non-criminal, non because I think it's criminal that people have to listen to me talk on this podcast. Um yeah, it's interesting. I, I interview, I mean, tons of authors, and most of them had careers before becoming authors. And, you know, many of them have been fortunate enough to be able to leave those behind and, and write full time. I have to say, the career that more people, the most often cited career, past career, has been in the legal profession from, from all the authors I listen to. There has to be some kind of overlap between creative writing and being a lawyer. And I'm curious as to what your take is on that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think it's uh, it works from both ends on that. I mean, I think the, prof it, the profession draws young people who have a facility with language and storytelling. Um, so that is part of it. You know, if you're standing in front of a jury, you tell a story. In fact, lawyers will talk about the story of the case. That's the phrase. And it's not enough to lay out, uh, you know, your exhibits and your evidence uh, and connect them logically. You have to weave it into a narrative because it's that storytelling that makes it feel intuitively true to a jury and makes them feel convinced. So, so there's that skill. It's also true that young people who uh, who have a facility with language who happen to be drawn to other professions won't be presented with the kind of rich dramatic material that a lawyer often will. So much drama is built on conflict and and on physicality and 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 uh, uh, those sorts of things that that are presented to a lawyer every day as a matter of course, whereas if you go into, uh, dentistry or, or shoemaking, uh, you're just not going to see those kinds of, you're not going to hear those kinds of stories. So, right. Well, you know, I'd have to interview a few more shoemakers <laughs> in order to, to know whether I should agree or disagree with you on that. But, um, but I think you're right. I mean, lawyers and storytelling and even just the legal profession lends itself very well to storytelling. Just look at how many, just over the few decades, you know, how many TV shows have been focused around, the law, whether it's Perry Mason, L.A. Law, um, Night Court. I mean, sure, I'll throw Night Court in there. New and old. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it does lend itself well to uh, to, to create. No, oh, it's inherently dramatic. The courtroom is a theater and it's built yeah. that way. And people, you don't need to set it up for people, either because they're familiar with the legal system or because they're. Uh, familiar with drama based on the legal system. It's just uh, a form that people 
understand intuitively, and that lets you get right into the story, and it lets you make the conflict explicit in a way that in ordinary life, most of our conflicts are never uh, uh, made explicit. So it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, arena to play in. Well, speaking of stories, how, what can you share with us about all that is mine I carry with me? I think that it's actually interesting that we've talked about uh, how I came to this chronologically. My first couple of books, I think, were largely miscast as crime novels. To me, they were always novels about people uh, who happened to be moving in, in the criminal world. Um, my third novel, uh, Defending Jacob, was meant as a, I wouldn't say a rejection of that or a reaction to that, but it was an attempt to write a book that uh, the readers would find more accessible, uh, mainstream readers, who wouldn't necessarily uh, pick up a book that they thought uh, was a crime novel or a noir or a suspense or, uh, or a thriller. We wanted to reach out to, to a general readership. Um, and so the goal with Defending Jacob was really to write a story about people whose lives were very close to my own. That was the rule of thumb that I consistently used. And so Defending Jacob takes place in the town where I live uh, and uh, in a social circle that's very much like the one that I uh, uh, inhabit. So with this book, I wanted to continue that trend and take it even further and write a book that was so close to my reality that readers might mistake it for fact instead of fiction. And so, again, the rule of thumb was to write it in a way that felt true. And, and so I avoid all of the, the cliches of the genre that I can when I, when I notice them and can weed them out successfully. Um, and, and I wanna, wanted to write a book that was so authentic that there would be a little itch at the edge of the reader's consciousness that says, how much of this is true? Because it feels so honest uh, and so authentic and, and, and told in a way that is so uh, fragmentary and so realistically mimics the way we experience life uh, that it must be true. And, and I think especially in this cultural moment when we're all trained to be skeptical, we are on the lookout for misinformation, quote unquote, uh, in Ernest Hemingway's phrase, our bullshit detectors are always on now and they're always pinned at 11. And that makes it very hard for readers, I think, to slip into a novel easily. Uh, you, uh, yeah. to, you know, to be a good reader uh, in, in the famous phrase, we're supposed to suspend disbelief. And there's not much else in our culture right now that is telling us that that's a good, good idea to do. Um, so it's, it's a novel that's meant to meet the contemporary reader where she is uh, with the sensibility of people who, who do the bulk of their reading on the phone uh, a phone that's pinging constantly and hitting them with uh, short, uh, frantic 
endless uh, bits of information, which causes you to uh, have a skittish, fragmentary uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, sensibility that it, that that I think is is uncomfortable and inhibits the sort of long-term focus that novels ask. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I, I, when I started it, you know, the opening chapter, now the, the book is told from multiple points of view, and I want to I want to ask you a question about that in a moment. But, you know, the first point of view is this character who who is a lawyer. Um, and I was reading it, knowing a little bit about your background, thinking, oh, my goodness, this is a long author's introduction. Like, because <laughs> you know, I thought, I'm like, wow, this he's really going into how this story came to be. And then it took me a minute to realize, okay, Dodo, um, this is the actual story. But I was lost in it, believing that this actually happened. Yeah, well, I'll let you in on a little secret. The, the narrator's name in the, up until the very last edit, uh, uh, in that first book was Bill Landay. And uh, the opening sentence of the book is, or something like, uh, when I finished my last novel, I fell into a long silence. Until the last edit, the first sentence was, when I finished my last novel, which was called Defending Jacob, I fell into a long silence. And my editors, official and unofficial, uh, who read the book, thought that that was blurring fact and fiction too much. It wasn't serving the book precisely because of the feeling that you mentioned, which is they opened the book and thought they were reading uh, a long author's forward. Uh, yeah. and, and that didn't give them the happy little uh, chill that you get when you encounter something that's new and super cool. It was distracting. It, it pulled them out of the story. And so that was a, that seemed to go a little too far. And so we dialed it back uh, this way. And so, yes, what you have is a narrator who sure does seem awfully like me. Yeah. Um, now, I, I did mention that this book is told from uh, different points of view. Um, if memory serves, there's four different points of view. Um, the book is broken up in, in four different books. How how challenging is it to write different points of view? And, and any tips or tricks for authors out there who are looking to do the same thing? I don't. I don't find it difficult. I find it um, interesting, and it, it's it's a journey. It's. I think that any writer who 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 has any ambition has honed. Uh, his sense of empathy and is able to slip into the sensibility of other characters, even if he isn't explicitly adopting their point of view. I think it's actually more challenging for readers. Um, and I think the, the problem is when you most often see the device of changing points of view, it often happens in alternating chapters uh, which I find uncomfortable and um, a little programmatic, a little intrusive. Uh, you're constantly being reminded uh, of those changing points of view. And it, I constantly hear the gears grinding um, when I encounter a book like that. It's almost as if 
the author is saying, look at me, look at me, I'm, I'm pulling this trick. Uh, and so I didn't want the book to be, um, to shift gears that often. I wanted each voice to take the stage and hold the stage uh, long enough to come to seem natural and long enough that you, uh, the reader would have the experience uh, of seeing the world through that character's eyes in a sustained way so that uh, the identification with that character would be complete. And this is something that I think good readers uh, do very naturally, even if they're not thinking about it explicitly. One thing that novels do uh, better than any other art form, I think, in fact, I would say that they do it uniquely uh, among all art forms, is they train you to see the world through the eyes of others. Uh, a lot of uh, other mediums will train you to sympathize. Uh, they'll train you to, uh, to, to see other people's lives and feel an emotional reaction in response to it. But when you read a story that adopts the point of view of a character, that's an invitation to actually enter their thoughts and to see the world through their eyes and to walk around the world in their shoes for a while. And that is a sort of intimate, uh, uh, intellectual and emotional connection that is, is deep and is unique to, to novels. And so I don't know that readers uh, find that difficult at all, even if they're not used to, to getting quite as deeply into a character as, as this book may ask. Yeah, well, I, I often think that and agree with you that reading is a great way to, to build empathy for other people because you are experiencing for you know brief periods of time what it's like to be and think like another person. I do think it, 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 that requires, though, is that authors are highly in tuned uh, with their own empathy and are, and are highly empathetic individuals. And I think that's one of, I think authors have a couple of superpowers, you know, beyond the ability to string the right words together and the use of grammar and all that. Um, that's the cost of entry, but, but authors really need to be curious individuals and, and extremely empathetic individuals. And, and if you tie the curiosity and the empathy together, you can really build these robust robust characters and and really compelling really compelling stories i think that's right and i would even take that thought one step further which is that empathy is the basis of morality you can't be cruel to another person once you once you gain the ability to uh understand what it would be like to be them and so i always think that uh, reading novels is a civilizing uh, influence on people's minds. It it makes them better by making them more sensitive uh, to the experience of other people. And so I tend to think when you meet a, a, a good reader, a good novel reader, you are more than likely meeting a good person because that gift of empathy uh, uh, is clearly there in the reader as well, even to, to have the ability, but also the interest uh, in seeing the world through through another person's eyes. Uh, that to me su suggests that you are you are very likely a good person. Yeah, I have to ask you a question about golf. Um, <laughs> 
What, what, if any, relationship do you have to the game of golf? Very little. Uh, I have played a few times. There's a there's a scene involving a golf game uh, in this book, and uh, some of the uh, uh, characters' skepticism about the game might uh, might be feelings that I share. <laughs> there's a lot of golfers and, and I, in my family, but I am not one of them. <laughs> I, I have to ask that because. I'm reading that scene, and this will not spoil anything for for prospective readers, but there's some dialogue going on between the two brothers. And the one who's a little bit, let's say, more like you, um, skeptical about the game, says it's only a game, and the other brother responds, it's not a game, it's a competition. And I wanted to share that with you because I had that exact same exchange with my father years ago. (laughs) I said... Dad, why are you so upset? It's only a game. And he looks at me point blank and says, it's a fucking competition. <laughs> and so I was reading that book and I'm like, highlight that passage, earmark it, have to ask William about it when I'm when I'm talking to him. <laughs> um, I don't really know. You know, I'm a very uncompetitive person myself, and yet I've played a lot of sports. And so uh, that has been a constant theme. Also, I have two teenage boys who have been involved in a lot of sports. So I've just spent time around competitive people. Um, You know, this is, as I say, this is a family story. And you're really, uh, when you're trying to capture that, you're trying to describe the sort of experiences that dramatize differences in temperament. You know, as we go through life, like like you and your dad playing golf, uh, it sounds like you just have different personalities. And in, in uh, stories like this, you're looking for settings that will allow that to play out in a dramatic way uh, rather than simply explaining it. Uh, and I, I love these two brothers, the, 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 these guys are just, uh, uh, that they're just different people. And <laughs> yet the fact that they're brothers means they must go through life together. Um, yeah. and, and we all have family members like that, where, uh, you know, the fact that you're in the same family doesn't mean you're the same person at all. Yeah. And so the, these sort of family dynamics uh, to me are always interesting. And I think they're both, um, you know, this sounds like such a grim book. It's about a, a woman who goes missing and, and the weight of her absence on the people she leaves behind over the ensuing decades. But I don't think that the book is grim uh, in any way, even though that material feels very dark. Uh, I think there's lots of scenes like that uh, scene where, where these two guys are playing golf uh, that that's funny. And it's funny in a way that will be familiar to anyone uh, who's ever sat down for a Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> with a bunch of uh, uh, oddball people who happen to be related to them. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it is interesting, you know, that of course the, the, you know, big event is the, the mother going missing and that's, that's no surprise. It's on the back cover and it happens very early in the story. Um, so everyone knows it, but it's how everybody reacts to it and how their personalities are just so different responding to that same event. You know, the two brothers and the sister, um, and, and the dad, you know, the dad slash husband. Um, it's true. It's, uh, it's, it just shows, you know, given the same event, how people can experience it so differently and, and how that reverberates 
over time. It, it, is, a, it is a great story. And I, I wish we could say more about it, but of course we can't. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, one thing that's interesting, though, is I think that, you know, people will hear that premise and they'll think, oh, oh, my goodness, that's such a, uh, a dark uh, place. I don't know if I would ever uh, want to experience that with this family. But to me, what makes that uh, story so resonant for ordinary people, for all people, is we all go through something like that. That's what growing up is, is you leave your family, you leave your parents, and you lose them uh, as parents, uh, at least. You know, they become uh, people that you're much less dependent on and that you, uh, you are meant to leave in a way. And so that sense of loss in a much smaller way uh, is something that we all experience. And, and it's the experience of, of growing up to know your parents as fellow adults and to see their flaws uh, in, in ways that are realistic uh, is something that I, that I think is universal. And as I say, that's the strength of crime stories that really hit home, that really resonate uh, in a universal way with readers, is they uh, enact feelings that everyone uh, everyone knows. And so that's the, the best crime stories uh, will hit home even with readers who, who, who would never steal a, a candy bar from, from Walgreens. Yeah. Well, it also, I think, taps into this universal fear that we have as children. And I'm thinking specifically of the, the youngest child, Miranda, here, which is that fear of abandonment, that fear that, you know, your parents may go out and not come back. Very um, true. Very so true. That, that kind of ropes you in um, it ropes you in as well. Um, so it, uh, it is, uh, it is a fantastic read. Um, certainly what I would consider to be a page turner, um, and the, uh, the twist throughout, which we can't talk about, but are, um, are fantastic and well executed for readers who are into such things. <laughs> Thank you. All <laughs> readers are into such things. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I, I do like to always get to know my authors a little bit more, um, through pop culture. So I'm curious, William, when you were growing up, uh, did you have any favorite TV shows, things you liked to watch as a kid? Oh my goodness. I was a TV fanatic, but I think, I don't think I watched anything that was too exotic. I, I did. <laughs> there's a scene early on in the book, uh, in the first few pages so this will not be a spoiler either. Uh, where uh, the little girl, the youngest child in the family, comes home uh, from grade school to find her mother missing, and she spends the afternoon watching TV. And the lineup of shows that she watched, the Mike Douglas show and the Merv Griffin show and all that, uh, and, and Three Stooges, and the, the, I remember watching those those shows in the afternoon. Um, yeah, so I can't think of anything that's uh, especially exotic. I was an, a very ordinary suburban kid watching all the same stuff that everybody else watched uh, you know yeah. Columbo and <laughs> McLeod and all the rest my wife and I are Columbo we're super fans does um, Columbo still exist it must still be out there somewhere well, I mean you could watch it but they stopped making it in the early 90s um, Gosh, somebody should bring that back they did bring it back in a way so there is a show on Peacock um, NBC streaming service called um, Poker Face and it is an updated Columbo, even the same title sequence fonts. Really? Is it explicitly calling back to Columbo or are there just similarities it, in the character? It is, it is very explicit. I mean, it, they're not mm. like redoing episodes. 
Um, but the character, I mean, it's played by a woman, Natasha Leone. Uh, she is fantastic. She she puts on her Columba. She puts on her Peter Falk. Um, <laughs> down to smoking a cigarillo, um, being a little bit bumbling. It is it is it is great TV. That's it's great, great TV, and it's That's got a, it's got a little edge to it too. So I'll have um, to check it out. Yeah, it, we my wife and I play a game like, can we find a Columbo that we haven't seen yet? Mm. And um, every we get lucky. I mean, a lot of times we'll start one because we DVR all of them that play on uh, you know the various stations down here, and you know we get five a week, and uh, <laughs> usually you know we've seen five out of five of them. But every now and then we get lucky and and come across one we haven't seen. I did not. I did, who knew that mentioning Columbo, I was hitting your uh, your secret obsession. Oh, it, it's it's uh, it's be, for, for the listeners of this program. It is, it is not a secret because I talk about them all the time. Uh, what about music? What'd you like to listen to growing up? Uh, let's see. Oh, I love Bruce. I love Springsteen. That was that was my biggie. I think. Uh, I love the Stones as well. In fact, actually, just this morning, I bought tickets for the Springsteen's upcoming tour, <laughs> which shows you how long he's been going. Uh, I remember Springsteen from high school. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was mainstream rock for me. Uh, yeah. I never, I, I, I've had tickets to see Springsteen live, but I've never been able to go. So for some reason, something happens and I, and I have to wind up giving the tickets away or selling them, but I, I hear it's a fantastic show. It's epic. He, he, his capacity to play these very long shows is astounding and i haven't seen him in many years but i'm told that it's he's undiminished yeah not not bad for 70 something <laughs> um what about uh, big lessons you've learned about yourself um as uh, th- through the you know going through the the writing and publishing process what what big insights have you learned about yourself William? i think i think it takes a certain temperament to to write to last in this profession. It, it's a very solitary profession. It takes a very long time to produce a book. And so it requires a lot of inner resources. The one thing that, that I would say, and I have two college age, uh, uh, kids now. So I'm kind of watching them begin to, uh, make career choices and, and try to find a place for themselves in the world. And I think the, major discovery that I would say that I've made about myself is that you really want to find work that suits your temperament, that feels natural to you. Uh, I think I'm, I've always uh, been an introvert, not, not in the sense that I'm especially shy or, or awkward, uh, but I've simply needed the, felt the need for the company of other people less. I'm, I'm quite comfortable uh, being by myself for long stretches. Uh, and, and that is all very, uh, uh, very suited to this profession, but I don't recommend it for, uh, (laughs) for people who, who, who aren't comfortable, uh, with long stretches and isolation like that. The other thing that I like about it, uh, that I, that I think has suited me well is that there's something kind of audacious about writing a novel. You are trying to create something transcendent and enduring and important. 
Uh, and I think that's true even of, of the most ordinary novels. Uh, it's a very ambitious thing to do. Uh, your novel will always be on the same shelf with Dickens and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and whoever else. Uh, and so those are the people that you are choosing to compete with. Uh, it's also, it, it's a bid to have your voice last uh, and outlive you. Uh, when I'm gone, my books will remain on the shelves and anyone who wants to uh, hear me, hear my thoughts, hear my voice, hear, hear the stream uh, of thoughts that we all experience, uh, can pick up that book and there I'll be. And that is uh, a rare, <laughs> a rare thing to to not not only aspire to but to achieve in some ways. I, I always think it's magical that you know when I pick up a book by, uh, uh, say F. Scott Fitzgerald or or Graham Greene, who's one of my favorites, you they're alive. You hear their uh, thinking in a way that is in the moment and very present. And that is a, an, an eerie, uh, otherworldly kind of uh, thing. So that that sort of aspiration, uh, which sounds very grandiose when I lay it out explicitly like that, uh, is actually inspiring. It's uh, I think everybody wants to do work that's important and that's significant. And I can't imagine a, a higher ambition than that. So there's, you know, as we're speaking, it's a, a gray day here in Boston in February. And, and that sort of ambition gets you out of bed. It gets you excited, gets you, uh, you know, what, who, who could aim higher than that? It, well, it's your path to Im immortality. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned not being a competitive person uh, earlier in our conversation. And then you just said you're competing with Hemingway <laughs> and Fitzgerald. Um, then a third who I, oh, I've already, Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> like, maybe you're maybe you're more competitive than you think. I don't know. Yeah, you might be right about that. I hadn't really put that together. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, if you think about you know the the younger William, um, you know you can pick a younger age for yourself. What words of advice would you tell your younger self? You know things that you know now that you would give some comfort to your younger self. Well, first of all, I was Billy. <laughs> I'm still Billy to to old friends and family. Um, I think what I would tell him is, it's okay. It all works out. Uh, one way or another, it all works out. Um, I think that when I was younger, I was a very sensitive kid, and I just stressed about a lot of things. And and I think that's natural for young people. Um, and as you get older, you kind of realize that there's lots of different ways to succeed and to make it and to feel comfortable and to, to find your, your place in the world and your family of one kind or another. And, and I wish I could go back and, and tell that to myself just so that I could uh, uh, relax and enjoy the experience. I don't know that I was a happy young person necessarily. And I think that to alleviate some of that anxiety uh, would have helped. Yeah. It would have helped. But that's, it's very easy for uh, a 59 year old man like me uh, to, to say that it's, you know, it's one thing to understand it intellectually and another thing to, to feel it. I think when you're a kid, you're just so vulnerable and, 
and there is no guarantee then it seems uh, that things will necessarily work out. And that's, that's one of the nice things about this book too, as I think, as you mentioned earlier, it captures some of the anxieties of, of childhood in a way that, uh, that make explicit uh, and, and that dramatize these, these sort of the universal anxiety that, that all kids feel and that we all carry the memory of into adulthood. Um, that anxiety of, of being abandoned one way or another is, is something that never goes away, even if you, uh, even once you've made your way in the world and, and found your new family. You know, I think as, you know, you mentioned being a sensitive kid, and I think, you know, growing up when we did, now you've got a couple of years on me, but not that many more. Um, you know, as, as boys, we were, you know, certainly the message that I was receiving, I don't want to speak for you, is that being sensitive was not a good thing. Absolutely you know? true. <laughs> and, you know, not being, you know, I was not a, what you would call a sports superstar. Um, <laughs> Nor was I, right. You know, but I was sensitive and I, I enjoyed creative things and I, I enjoyed, you know, you know, just expressing my feelings. I mean, through writing, through other ways. Um, but I think that's, that's, you know, that's interesting that you, you kind of shared that, you know, you know, kind of telling yourself it's okay. Um, it's going to be okay. And it's, it's okay to be sensitive because I, I, like you, I felt too, that there was something wrong with me as, as a kid. Right. Um, and it was only until I was much older that I realized, Hey, no, that, that thing I do, that, that thing I have to be able to, to take feelings and express them through words and share them with other people is it's wonderful. It's just as good as being able to, you know, hit a home run. Uh, Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah. In fact, what you, what you may have perceived as weakness as a child, uh, what you might've been taught to perceive as weakness as a child is precisely the strength that makes you good at what you do today at what you're doing right now. That sort of sensitivity and that empathy, uh, those are the skills that you are exercise, exercising when you have a show like this and when you have conversations like this. Yeah, I don't think you can be a good interviewer or a good reader uh, if you don't have a sense of people. And, and that, that is precisely the, <laughs> what, you, what was read as weakness uh, when you were a kid. All right. Well, William, if people want to get in touch with you, do you have a website or social media that you want to share with the listeners of Uncorking a Story? Sure. Uh, the website is williamlanday.com, uh, L-A-N-D-A-Y, uh, and and all of the links and all of the everything and information about the books uh, can be found there. Very good. And we'll put all of that in the show notes for all of you listeners out there. So don't feel like you've got to write anything down. Um, just go to the show notes and you can see links to the website and to the books and to... <laughs> Uh, William or Billy's uh, social media. <laughs> William, thank you for stopping by uncorking your story and letting me uncork yours. Thanks for listening to uncorking a story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.